Sound Design, live. On April 7th, I spoke with Pierre Dupree, the audio supervisor at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas. Halfway through the call, I had to switch to a telephone, and unfortunately, the audio quality is not good. But hopefully it won't distract too much from the interview. Tape Op is one of my favorite magazines. All right, so you know what and I'm I talking kinda, about. I, yeah, I, I kind of had the a similar thought where there, there's no uh, good kind of aggregate magazine or blog or just anything where it talks about theater and it never gets into the kind of detail and just the cool tricks that you learn in Tape Op. Sound design. Live. Growing up in Dallas, um, in high school, um, it's, it's, it's interesting, I, I, I think, and I think it happens with a lot of sound designers especially, as opposed to designers from other fields, costume, lighting, et cetera, set, um, that from a very young age, uh, like many other sound people, I was always attracted to radio equipment, always attracted to microphones, uh, record players, uh, you know, and this would be in the early, early 80s, late 70s, um, what was available then. And uh, records for me were really, really cool and seeing it go into an amplifier and and uh, just seeing how sound worked. And, you know, obviously with a record, it's, <clears throat> it's mechanical. The needle reads the grooves. Grooves get passed on, get preamplified into the amplifier, which amplifies it, gets it to those speakers. So I really, really enjoyed sound. And, you know, back then, you know, you had my my first uh, tape recorder and things like that, the little Fisher-Price one. Huh. Um, you know, where, you know, one side was a story and the other side you could do whatever you wanted with on the tape. So I would always do a lot of recording when I was really, really young. Um, and, you know, ex- real useful exposure to theater didn't come until high school. Um, so I, I, I was definitely more world of sound oriented and very much, I knew that I liked that. Um, I very much enjoyed music. Um, but in high school is when I started getting into theater. We had a very, I went to a Jesuit college prep in Dallas and we had a very, very good, uh, theater program over there. And we did a lot of, we did a, uh, we did a lot of really good plays that were good for high schoolers to do. Um, obviously, you know, things like Hamlet. But we also did uh, Arthur Miller's Crucible, um, some shows with a lot of sound in it. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, we even did Ani Mame. Wow. Um, and that really got me uh, excited about theater and how everything I loved about music, either creation of music or creation of sound, um, using various different playback devices and uh, where to put speakers and all aspects of that. Um, I really find to enjoy and find it most satisfying in the context of theater. Um, so that's really where, where it became. I mean, you know, and honestly, you know, there were a lot of pretty girls in theater. Huh. Uh, theater for me, that initial introduction in high school, um, I, I think really is what kind of set me on the course of where I am now. Did you study anything related in college? And then what were your first jobs out of college? So from high school, um, we didn't, we had English literature classes, of course, um, didn't have anything specific to theater. There were no theater classes. So, um, you know, pretty much, you know, by junior, senior year, I thought, okay, well, I should major in theater. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Dallas called the University of Dallas, and from there, uh, the program over there was more straight theater, not technical theater, not 
not you know not acting, not directing. It was very much drama, the study of the text, and that was very good too. What that allowed me to do was apply all my sound knowledge and take a bigger focus on on only the text, only the play. Uh, and and from there, I got a very very good workout. Um, a lot of Shakespeare, uh, a lot of some obscure plays that wouldn't necessarily be produced elsewhere, um, and things like that. The the other thing was no one over there was really doing sound. And with talking with a lot of other people, it seems like that kind of happens. Where in high school, it's like a bunch of people do sound, and the information just gets passed on orally. It's mm-hmm. like some you know bizarre ancient tradition of sound, and you have to kick the mixer this way, and you know you have to put this here like that. And a, a lot of sound people, when they're first starting out, learn very much on their own, as opposed to some of the older, more established things, you know, lighting. Where you know back then, even lighting had some automated consoles in high school. Well, that's Which what now I, is commonplace, but it's crazy to think of, you know, back then. That's what I think is kind of ironic, though, because sound was the first added element to theater outside of just acting, you know? There was no yeah. electricity when yeah. plays were first being produced, but there was yeah. sound, there was sound design, and yet it's now, you know, after scenic design and lighting design, um, you know, one of the, it's not the most important element. Sure. Yeah, it, it, that's that's a fantastic observation because, it, you know, sound is like one of the only things specifically mentioned in stage directions or, spe- you know, spe- like in Shakespeare, you know, oh, I hear the cock crowing. Well, you have to hear, you have to have a cock crowing mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, I mean, you can do it without, obviously, but, but, but you're right. Sound was first explicitly mentioned in those texts. And it's not until now that sound is really starting to, you know, within the past you know, five, ten years or wherever, where it's really starting to catch up as a sophisticated design element, which is really, really weird. (laughs) So how did you come back to that, even though there was no really, like, guide for being a sound designer? Well, and that's what I think happens with a lot of people, Um, a, a, a lot of sound people, where they start doing it and they have to make mistakes and they have to figure it out for themselves. And it's, you know, it's, it's good and bad. And, uh, when I when I went when I went to grad school, I'll get in a little more about that. Um, but where it's good is basically you have a sandbox with no supervision. So as long as you have the drive and the want and the need to push something further and not do the bare minimum, uh, you can't. Um, our uh, so I mean essentially my experience in college was to um, you know back then mini disc was the rage and was all we could afford, but we didn't have you know, stuff that you see in the professional theater, large mixing consoles, multiple outs and everything. So we had to find creative solutions to get a sound to happen in the back of the theater, for example, uh, which, you know, is very, very basic in, in regional theater. But in a lot of colleges still, um, it's not, it's not so apparent. So essentially it lets you create and try different things and, and just think of what's possible. Uh, Back then, because we we could only have two tracks at once, uh, like for example, like for a voice cue where you have four, you have four voices talking at the same time, but it has to come out of four different speaker locations. We would simply do things like bounce uh, the four tracks down to two mini discs, and the operator would hit two mini discs play boom at the same time, mm-hmm. assigning one mini disc deck to the front speakers, one mini disc deck to the back speakers. Uh, that's kind of how we did it. 
And just, I think that started the seeds for a lot of creativity as far as, all right, well, how are we going to route this and how are we going to make sense of this, but still be able to have a good sounding final product. Um, now where that's bad is, um, when I started applying to grad schools, you don't have what you have now where you can say, okay, how do you properly do a line diagram? And if you didn't have a professor at your university who knew, uh, you were kind of making it up as you went along. So I would do things like, you know, just have, uh, you know, the output section of the mixer and have lines going to a box labeled amplifier, labeled to another box, you know, labeled speaker, things like that. So the uh -huh. paperwork would be there. But what I heard from a lot of people was, well, your paperwork's good and it makes sense and everything, but it's wrong. Oh. <laughs> you know, who's, who's teaching sound over there? And, you know, and it's go, well, you know, no one is, but, um, <laughs> you know, talking with a lot of, talking with a lot of people that happened to a lot of people around that time, um, just because they were interested in sound, but no one was there to tell them how it was done. Uh -huh. Going to graduate school, um, which is, I went to CalArts in California, which is how I ended up moving from Dallas to Los Angeles. I'm sure, you know, there's the big debate of, okay. Do you go into the professional world, start there? Do you go to grad school first? Mm -hmm. Do you go to the professional world and then go to grad school? And that's a whole other debate that mm -hmm. I, I agree with both sides on. Um, but for me, what worked was going directly from undergrad to graduate school. And for me, graduate school was three years. It's a very, very selfish time where you just say, okay, I've taken three years and I'm going to spend these three years to hone specifically what I want to do. You know, I had I had my undergraduate degree in drama, so I understood text, and I understood reading, and I understood uh, the basic principles. You know, it was a very liberal arts of educa education. But now I'm going to take three years and solely focus on sound and uh -huh. just throw as much stuff at myself as possible to learn only about sound. So I was at CalArts for three years, had three very, very good years there, learned a lot, and... Um, Freelanced after that for about uh, two, three months, uh, assisted uh, uh, the sound designer who was the head of sound at CalArts, John Gottlieb, assisted him for a few months on some shows at the Geffen and at the Mark Taper Forum, and uh, ended up at uh, Pasadena Playhouse in Pasadena, California, um, as their uh, production audio supervisor, where I was basically, it's a one-person apartment, running all the shows, designing a handful, and just keeping the house system together. A advice I would have for anybody looking at um, graduate schools from undergrad is to pick um, the place that's as completely different as your undergrad as possible. Right. In Pasadena, we would do about two or three musicals a year. And the straight plays would all have, you know, the, the normal regional uh, theater thing of PCCs lining the stage to fill the uh, the backfills, the delay fills under the balcony and whatnot. See, now I didn't know that was a normal regional theater thing. It it usually is. I mean, a lot of times, at least you know, some, some of the places I've been to, um, every theater's different. I know that some places pride themselves on having. Uh, acoustics so good in the theater that you know the ceiling, the ceiling was built with acoustic tiles that are designed to absorb the bad frequencies, take the vocal frequencies, and really push them along the theater. Uh, you know, kind of like an opera house was designed. Yeah. But a lot of times, if there's one problem with the theater, it's that sound was not a con uh, consideration at all. Uh, you know, especially theaters that were very very old and then renovated, and any 
uh, acoustic properties, and I'm differentiating between acoustic properties for voice travel and acoustic properties for sound to be flat Mm -hmm. and even coming through speakers. And, you know, sometimes you get one, sometimes you get the other, but almost all the time you get neither. The normal regional thing and what you guys do at the alley for um, voice reinforcement isn't necessarily complicated or revolutionary, um, but I feel like people get into the habit, at least a lot of productions I've worked on, people get into the habit of using wireless head-mounted microphones for every actor, no matter what they're doing. And it's funny because that's that's usually the most complicated and the most expensive sound reinforcement solution you can implement. Um, and so now, <laughs> right. when I get into solution uh, situations like that, where people are going down that path unnecessarily, I use the Alley Theater as an example, and I say, well, here's Hubbard Stage in Houston, Texas, um, with a capacity of 824 people, and... In most productions, they don't use any wireless microphones like that. So, is that true? And can you right. can you talk a little bit about that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. That is true. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the last time we've used wireless mics simply for reinforcement in a straight play, um, because uh, when when we do reinforcement, most of the time it'll just be floor mics, um, and. With floor mics, we can almost never get away, obviously, putting them in the mains um, because they're too close. But we'll, we'll just pipe the sound of the floor mics uh, back to the delays. Because I, I think two things are happening. A lot of people who get into acting are not necessarily doing it from a theater bent. They're looking at TV or movies or radio or film or something. Um, and what they lose is that technique and that skill of being able to whisper or speak very quietly and yet throw the voice incredibly far. And some people are still good at it, but I wonder if it's a dying art. I think a lot of actors aren't being trained the way they used to uh, and, and learning how to, A, just speak at a loud volume, but also speak at a quiet volume or whisper and know how to manipulate their, their voice or, or, or what they do in order to reach a large amount of people to, to go to make their voice travel further. Um, especially as, as a lot of actors who are more in, who are more movie or TV oriented where they don't need to do that. And it sounds very unnatural to do that for TV or movie, or if they have radio work to make their voice go that far. And so they don't know how to do it. Um, so that's, that's, I think the first, that's the first step of, of, of kind of this. And then the other thing is the audience's ears are totally different than they were 50 years ago. Uh, as sound for movies, which is, you know, movies and TV, which is definitely obviously the, the dominant um, art form for the way people hear actors, they're used to hearing the sound of a voice three inches away from a fantastic microphone that's been mixed to all heck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. um, and that's been compressed and edited and uh, checked for clarity and uh, re-records and re-edits have happened, so it's really pristine. So they're used to the sound of that, you know, the voice coming three inches away from microphone, as opposed to a voice coming 20, 40, 50 feet away 
from the, from the mouth with no reinforcement whatsoever. So what we'll normally start with are uh, PCC microphones um, along the lip of the stage. And usually what we try to do is keep anything that's reinforcement only for what's considered the back of the house. Uh, so anything that is a delay fill that just uh, <laughs> essentially is only for people so far back that we can't expect anybody to be understood from the stage. We'll pipe a little bit of that mic uh, into those speakers. And in order to, and, and then we always try to make it sound as natural as possible, and we try to let the acoustics do mo most of the work so that anything we're putting in those speakers is just for a little bit of clarity, mm -hmm. just a little bit, uh, trying to keep it sound as natural as possible. Um, so that, the people that's in the, what we try to do the best. So the people in the front rows are really just hearing uh, direct from the actor, and then as you get farther to the right. back of the house, you're hearing the delay speakers. Right, right. So yeah, the, the further back you get, the more reinforcement you're hearing. That's always where we try to start. And then if we start, if, if we start having problems, like uh, uniformity problems, if it's still not loud enough in the front, then we'll start uh, very carefully trying to add it to our, our front speakers. Um, but often, because of the level we have to get at, and because stage mics are so far or so relatively far away from the actor's mouth, it, it's never as successful as when we do it with delay speakers. Sure. So, is the operator uh, following a lot of notes in the book, or are they running through a lot of scene memories? We'll build scenes along with the sound cues. If an actor's in a downstage position, uh, the board will automatically fade. Uh, you know, wherever the mic that the actors near down a little to compensate for volume, and then we'll dump all the other mics in that scene. I see. Uh, usually, we'll 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 make scene changes, kind of like kind of like what lighting does with making sure the actors are lit. We'll make sure the actors are mic'd and turn any unneeded mics off, and we'll change that. We'll change scenes on our uh, digital console along with the sound cues. And is there anything else special that you're doing to? To make this all work out, are you? I mean, is there anything else special that you think um, other people might want to know about? Um, that's a really good question. I guess the, you know, you know, the old thing, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> right. Um, the the key is, uh, you know, we have a company of actors here, and they know the space very, very well, and they they know how they know how to use their voice, and they're very, very good. And so we have a good support from the source. And I guess that's, that's not really, <laughs> that's not helpful. Or, or a tip, well, it could be a tip just as far as you're only as good as the actors. Well, I and think it's, it's more clear why this works consistently at the alley. It's not just because you're there. It's not just because you have the same microphones every time. But you also have a pretty consistent cast of actors then right, um, right. who know what you're doing. Right, exactly, and and uh, the actors are absolutely wonderful with making sure that they're consistent and that they know how to properly project their voice. So that's that's kind of the first thing, um, and and I guess one tip is just kind of realize that start at the source, know know what the source is, what the what the sound is, because that'll lead you down the path of okay, what are the problems I need to solve? What are the challenges that we have? For a specific tip about what we do, 
I try to think creatively and differently and not let the positions of the mics be the same or the mics themselves be the same. Um, there are a lot of times where a big black PCC is not going to work um, because the set's a different color. It won't fit in with the decor uh-huh. or it's just too big. It, it won't fit. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of times we'll, we'll change. We'll use a, a little lavaliers. We do have super cardioid lavaliers, uh-huh. which are awful for if you're going to put them on an actor for a musical, but are wonderful for mounting to the stage because they're very, very small. No one can see them. They're super cardioid, so you can point them in specific positions on the stage, and they won't feed back as easily as uh, lavaliers that are omnidirectional. I've never tried that. So do you do you have like a tiny little stand or a piece of wire or something, or you just lay it on the yeah, stage? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll we'll uh, we'll use little pieces of wire, and they're small enough that they can be uh, stapled behind. If if uh, duvetine is covering the stage or something like that, we'll put them uh, between the duvetine and the deck itself and the facing, and we'll just we'll staple them in, and they stay put. The wire very much how. Uh, a lot of engineers and designers will put floor wire on a uh, wireless mic when it's on an actor's head so it can be bent in a certain direction. Uh, we do the same thing for the stage. Um, things, things like that. We'll, nice. we'll use a, Audio-Technica makes those choir mics, um, right. like 853s a year. We use those a lot uh, for a similar reason. They're lower profile, um, especially if... On a show, if, there were, if the deck is very, very noisy, if the deck's hollow and you hear a lot of stomping, you hear a lot of rumbling coming from PCCs, we'll just take them out and replace them with uh, these choir mics. In the same position on the floor or hanging them? Yeah, yeah in, the, in the same position, kind of uh, uh, mounted to the uh, facing of the stage, uh, pointing up just a little bit, obviously. Okay. Um, and, uh, and we'll use that. We, we have great success with that. The, the front of the stage curves over the audience, and the audience itself is pretty wide around the stage. Well, yeah, it's, it's three-quarter thrust. And it's stuff. a three-quarter thrust, and it's wide, and on top of that, your speaker positions are left and right. They're not... Right. You don't have a center speaker position, so you've got, you've got, a, lot of, um, got a lot of geometry to deal with there. Right, and in, in the... the uh, we don't have a very good place to put them in the center simply because the architecture, there's a big black baffle, which any speaker we would put up for a center cluster gets blocked by that baffle after about six, seven, eight rows. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so essentially, so we have to have the, the main left and right. Um, so we did a, a lot of vector works drafting, um, looking at the coverage pattern of the CQ1 and the CQ2. CQ2 is a much narrower speaker. And so just doing the measurements ahead of time with the drafting program allowed us to say, oh, okay, our CQ1s in this case, we'll put them on the inside first to let them uh, create the left and right imaging for this certain section of the house. And we'll put the CQ2s, the narrower ones, we'll put those on the outside. Um, so looking left to right from the house, it goes CQ2, CQ1, stage, CQ1, CQ2. And so... The narrow focus lets us cover the entire house, which is pretty wide. Or, excuse me, the combination of the CQ1 and the CQ2 gives us 
enough coverage over the whole house, but putting C- two CQ1s uh, left and right would uh, have a lot of comb filtering between the two CQ1s because the angle would be so wide. Right. Uh, in the house. I hope <laughs> I hope that I explained that. Yeah, I think uh, so. Well, clearly. what I didn't realize before, and I think I may have known this, but then forgot. Um, so you're trying to run, you're running a stereo system? Uh, well, we're running a stereo system for the mains. For our... Because that's, uh, that's a pretty wide room to try to achieve stereo with, but... It is. I guess and it's it, working. It, it, it works, but it's really, really difficult because our delay rings, and this is something that will probably change uh, at some point down the line, our delay rings, we have two delay rings. Those are mono. And we have, for people who are outside the coverage of our CQs, we have an array of five JF80s for the front section, where normally there would be a center cluster. And uh, the term I've heard for this, which I really, really like, is exploded center. Uh-huh. Instead of having one speaker uh, or, or an array of speakers, like a line array, uh, dead center, we've taken five speakers and equally spaced them uh, kind of uh, you know, up, up in the grid but along the stage so it curves with the audience. Okay. But that's also run mono. It, admittedly, stereo maybe doesn't happen until after you've gotten about uh, seven rows back. The main reason for doing that is then when you're doing the kind of reinforcement we've been talking about where you have floor mics, um, is that you're trying to get realistic localization. I guess that's the main reason for running a stereo system there. Right. Uh, a lot of times it lets us, um, for, for two things, I mean, a lot of times we'll take the floor mics and uh, sometimes we'll pan something that's all the way stage left to the stage left main uh, for imaging so that when somebody's stage left, most of it comes from the main, from the speaker next to them. Sometimes we'll do the opposite of that. Uh, we'll pipe it mainly to the stage right speaker so we can get more gain because the speaker's further away from the mic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that also kind of goes back to adaptability and, and being willing to try different things and experiment a little bit. I guess one thing I didn't touch on that's important is how when you're doing floor mics, what it does to your play... Uh, playback because if you have anything on stage that gets picked up by the floor mics as well sure and it's one thing for a scene transition um, where we have big loud music and a lot of furniture clunking and everything we'll automate the mics in that queue to go all the way out Mm -hmm. and then bring them back when the lights come back up Uh, but in this case in the show Amadeus there's a lot of underscoring and there's a lot of subtle underscoring and shifting around the stage uh, of the underscoring itself. Uh, upstage and on stage, uh, we have uh, several different arrays of speakers to make the sound appear that it's uh, downstage and midstage and upstage, so you get some kind of depth uh, for where the sound is localized. When we were programming uh, our playback systems QLab for this show, when we were programming QLab, we would always keep the floor mics on, and there's not really a magical way for, you know, for the floor mics to be on and not pick up the sound that's coming on stage and some of that getting piped into the delay speakers. Um, but anytime we were programming sound levels, we always had the floor mics on so that we knew what the floor mics were going to pick up and send to the back of the house uh-huh. uh, during the show itself. 
Well, is there anywhere that you're active online in case people want to follow the things that you're doing? I, I'm a big fan of uh, 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 the uh, QLab support forums. Uh, figure53.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always lurk there. And then if people aren't already on it, they should be, um, which is the sound list, the theater sound mailing list. Right. Pierre Dupree, uh, audio supervisor at Alley Theater in Houston. Thanks for talking to me. And um, I feel like we got like one really important question answered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sound design. Live.